Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. In a time of globally rising authoritarianism, increasing political polarization, of climate change, of many political challenges, it can feel as if the challenges that our societies face are too big to be faced alone. As if, if we are seeking to build something better, we will have to find a way to build it together. That is certainly the view of my guest today, the award-winning journalist and novelist Eche Tamelkiran, whose latest book, Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now, declares that what we really need is a total transformation in our thinking in response to these urgent issues. We cannot confront these crises, she writes, without making a radical commitment to one another in the face of a world that encourages distrust above all else. Eche, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Faisal. Thank you for having me. These issues seem political, but they're also deeply personal to you. You no longer live in Turkey, and you wrote your previous book, How to Lose a Country, after realizing that the same authoritarianism that had forced you to leave was rising all across the world. So I feel like in your case, the political really is very personal. Um, well, I think that political is personal anyway, and being a woman helps because uh, I am also taught by feminist politics, which says personal is political. Uh, but I do think that it's not only me. Everybody is living um, the, the, the consequences of rising fascism, authoritarianism, and the general confusion of post-truth world in their very personal lives, uh, individual lives, and in their per personal relationships. Mm. Uh, I know that Brexit has, you know, <laughs> damaged a lot of, uh, you know, friendships and marriages, etc. Yeah. So we are all living the consequences very personally. Is that why you wanted to write a book that was more personal, that deals with the individual rather than, let's say, a political book? Oh, well, I, I think it's a political book, but yes, uh, it becomes more personal when I talk about mora morality and moral issues of 21st century, I guess. After How to Lose a Country and after it was published in several languages, I, I think like I went around the world uh, probably two times and I talked to several audiences. And the question, uh, which I think is quite a personal question, was so where is hope you know i depressed all the audiences properly and then they were asking for hope from me right. um, so i started thinking about that concept why do people want hope and what would it change if i tell them there is hope or what would it change if i tell them there is no hope and i started thinking that this is an inconsequential question uh, and people need something personally in their personal lives in their personal politics so to speak something else they need something else and I thought that word might be faith and I started the book from that concept so to speak uh, so yeah it sounds for me it sounds personal because I'm talking about such concepts like faith radical love uh, friendship dignity uh, so these are uh, I don't know if they're personal, but they are certainly very close to the bone. Uh, mm. So for everyone, I think that's why maybe it feels personal. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm following the line of Hannah Arendt, Simone Weil, Albert Camus, who, who, who were not completely, uh, you know, distant from moral issues when it comes to politics. Uh, so uh, and these 
you know, all these writers wrote about their personal, you know, they jumped from their personal issues to politics or they they saw these, uh, you know, uh, lines or, you know, connections between the personal and political. Mm, so Very when, much rooted in their personal experiences. Absolutely. I mean, like Hannah Arendt wrote uh, about forgiveness. I'm like, she wouldn't have if her biggest and first love uh, hadn't become a Nazi uh, party member. So, yeah. And Albert Camus, uh, all the same. Simone Weil, all, all the same. I mean, like, these people took it to the heart. Uh, and I think this is important, especially when we are living in a heartless uh, age. I'm like, this is a this is a nice reference to Marx now, but it has been a heartless world, and it is even become it's becoming even more so. So, people need something emotional as well. So, what I'm trying to do in together is actually building up a new politics of emotions. Uh, a new vocabulary for the progressives of the world so they can enlarge the front against fascism, uh, against uh, climate crisis and all the things that make the century unbearable. Uh, I think those words are calling everyone to togetherness other, uh, compared to other words, like more technical political words. In a way, it's quite a unique book because, it, as you say, it's partly political manifesto. Some of it reads like a self-help book, but it's not either <laughs> of those things. It's it's one of the metaphors you use to describe it in the book itself is uh, a political and moral antibody. <laughs> what, did, what did you mean by that? That was your term. Uh, well, like, <laughs> while I was writing the book, there was pandemic, so uh, <laughs> the entire discourse was transformed. <laughs> right. So I think I couldn't help it. Yeah. Yeah, I was under the influence <laughs> of this vaccine discourse, probably. But, but what did you, I mean, do, do you think of the book as, well, I guess you don't think of it as a vaccine. You think of it as an antibody. Yeah, it's an antibody. What do you uh, mean? Well, you know, we're talking about politics as if we are not uh, exhausted. I, mm. I know this best from Turkey because you resist uh, you stand up, you shout, you resist again, you uprise. But all these things happen with people and in people as well. And I, I saw a nation uh, becoming exhausted. So I also wanted to, yes, help. I mean, like, it's not self-help because it's about two people minimum because it's about togetherness. Uh, it's not, you know, proposing some sort of individual salvage. But still, uh, I think we, we have to think about what people emotionally need in order to uh, rise up and uh, to take some sort of political stance to get into political action. It's not easy. I mean, because all this time, especially since 1980s, uh, the dominant discourse was that politics is dirty and there are adults in the room. Uh, we don't have to think about anything because this is the best system that the humankind can come up with. Uh, and this is freedom. This is uh, free market economies, freedom per, freedom per se. And several other you know, ridiculous mottos were imposed in us. Uh, two generations grew up with this discourse. Uh, and now, suddenly, everybody has to be an activist. Why? Because the planet is going to hell. It's mm. an apocalypse. And now we have to do something. So how can you trans transform that ideal 
individual of neoliberalism into an activist or into a protester, uh, a, a member of resistance. You have to, I think, we have to, or we all have to speak about the matters that are close to heart as well. Uh, and also, we are living in an age, uh, thanks to this post-truth uh, thing, we're living in an age of hostility, anger, uh, and, you know, clash. Uh, our communica new communication sphere is designed to create these, um, these emotions. Mm. So... Uh, togetherness is becoming harder and harder, and especially when we need it most. There's an urgency to the book, I think. I mean, you're not you're not writing something, you know, as a blueprint for ten years down the line. You're saying that we have to change our behavior in the immediate here and now. Well, Faisal, sometimes I feel like a ambulance going around <laughs> Europe warning people or sometimes I feel like a Cassandra telling people oh you're going to die or something especially I felt that you're, uh, after How to Lose a Country was published yes there is an urgency it's not my invention or it's not my uh, you know take on the current issues it is so I mean like uh, what's happening in Glasgow now uh, is the best example of you know, of that urgency. Uh, so, yes, there is an urgency, but, the, you know, people uh, always postpone these things to future, you know, better for a better future, uh, building a better future, uh, a new future, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually now what we have to do. We have to do it now. And it is not, uh, you know, it's not a guide, this book. Like, you can organize like this, you can act like this. It's, it, it, I am not that practical in Together. I am giving some sort of new vocabulary uh, to uh, build our political action upon. So, yeah, it is, as you said in the beginning, it's, uh, it feels different than a you know, proper political book, I guess. You mentioned um, Cassandra, the the Greek prophet, prophetess, <laughs> um, which is something that you've been you've definitely been compared with her in the past. Do you recognize some of the aspects of that that you feel that you know, as she was not listened to in her time, perhaps you are not being listened to with the urgency that you feel is needed? Well, yes. The other day, I saw on social media uh, memes about Boris Johnson uh, portraying him as a fascist leader, authoritarian leader, whatever. And I thought, my God, it was only two years ago that I told about uh, that I told them that this will happen, and they were smirking at me because you know uh, when you write about politics as a woman, you always end up with a white middle-aged established man on stage, and I was on the stage with that man for numerous times. And the first thing they do is like to refute you. It, 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 they don't they don't want to think together with you. They want to refute your you know ideas uh, or uh, analysis and so on. So I was trying to, you know, tell them that, uh, okay, it, this is not about me. I'm not comparing the countries. I know your country is different, but what I see happening in your country is exactly the same what happened in my country. So maybe <laughs> you should be more alert. That was the thing I, I, I was trying to tell, not only in, you know, Britain, but also in France, Germany, 
uh, where people are more alert about these things uh, and United States. But there is this exceptionalism in in the Western world. Uh, they, they are really too confident in their institutions, which is okay with me. But like, you know, this uh, and still the, those things that I said that would happen is happening, especially in 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 the UK. Um, it is not giving me this uh, schadenfreude, so to speak. I'm not feeling like, oh, I told you so and you didn't believe. <laughs> it, it's not like that. I truly believe in global solidarity when it comes to fascism because I know and we, sh we actually all know that fascism cannot be beaten uh, with the national resources only. Uh, it, it, fascism is always beaten uh, uh, through global solidarity. So actually, I was trying to call people to that global solidarity. Uh, you, you feel that sometimes you're not taken seriously because there's a sort of Western attitude of, well, you know, that, that happens in Turkey, but of course it could never happen in the West, that Western exceptionalism that you talked about. Well, uh, if you don't... they. Uh, if there were people who were not taking me seriously, it's not about me, it's about them, certainly. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, like people took it seriously, of course, in Australia, in, you know, other places in England as well. Uh, it is just that, I guess, these things, you know, Hannah Arendt says, you know, drawing lessons from history is a myth. That is true. Uh, drawing lessons from another country is another myth, I think. I mean, like they don't, uh, people not easily are convinced uh, that this is a global phenomena. My, mm. you know, uh, my argument was uh, it's not like, you know, all the countries all of a sudden somehow going through the same thing. Uh, going through through this danger of losing democracy because this is happening because it was inherent in the system. Neoliberalism, the contract of neoliberalism has cancelled out the uh, fundamental contract of democracy because we, uh, you know, wiped, uh, the system uh, took out social justice from that equation, the equation of democracy, and the democracy has become the theatrics of itself. So therefore, people do not have any, uh, you know, true connection to their democracies. That's why maybe they are not uh, alert enough, uh, especially in the in the Western world, uh, to protect their democracies, especially after 2008 economic crises, uh, they, the crisis that they feel like, okay, there's nothing for me in the system. Uh, I, so, which is, yeah. I mean, people who are students of uh, fascism will recognize that when start people in the society start to feel that way, that's a profoundly dangerous moment. But I wanted Absolutely. to ask you, yeah, but I wanted to ask you about the Cassandra analogy again, because what I was getting at was, I wonder what, the, this personal toll that is when you're traveling so much and talking to groups when they are listening to you, but to some degree they're they're at an angle to your perspective. They can't quite believe that it's true. Yes, I think it's the human nature. Uh, people, you know, want to wait until last moment, uh, and this is how fascism actually become flourish <laughs> in political mm. space. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I am, uh, English is not my mother tongue. I have curly hair. I'm coming from Turkey. 
so I am not, the, and I'm not an academic. I'm not an established person in that sense. So it is not uh, easy for them to uh, sit down and take it seriously. And also, I'm like the biggest factor is that I am t- <laughs> talking, uh, talking about things they do not want to hear. Mm, that's that's part of the difficulty. Um, yeah. Ironically, of course, you you probably do look like the historic Cassandra. So <laughs> why? Unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you then about the book. I mean, the origin of the book, because you talked about how there was a personal aspect to you know the the, the writings of Hannah Arendt, um, Albert Camus, and I wonder if you feel there was a personal aspect to to you that brought you to that book. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, it is not a, a picnic to go around the world and talk to audiences about how the humanity is going towards hell and politics uh, is not e- politics will be a disaster very soon and it's not easy to protect our democracies. Uh, one kind of uh, loses her faith in humankind. I started feeling like, you know, I am losing my faith in everything. Uh, the entire action, political action or political study uh, somehow started to look meaningless to me. So in order to heal this damage in myself, I think I I started to think about a more personal perspective. Uh, You know, we are living... Excuse me? No, I was saying you were talking about your book tour on how to lose a country. And it was during that period of time that you felt that you started to lose faith. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Uh, and I, I noticed that I cannot really answer the question of hope. Yeah. Which is an important thing. I mean, like, uh, because um, I can do a lot of tricks uh, in a public talk to evade a question or to, to look really smart <laughs> while not answering. But mm. actually, deep inside, I knew that I couldn't answer the question of hope. Uh, so that is why I started thinking about hope, faith, and then the you know other words uh, followed uh, when I was writing together. Well, that's um, that's what yeah. you say. I mean, it's, it's in there in the first chapter, um, which is called Choose Faith Over Hope, that you don't like the word hope. You've been quite remarkably consistent about that. I wonder what it is about hope <laughs> that you find so objectionable and, and why you still have faith, even though you don't have hope. Um, you know, in Turkey, especially after 2010, let's say, when things seriously started going down the hill, uh, while I was giving while I was still able to give speeches in Turkey, in public speeches, uh, the people asking me the same question. So where is hope, Eja Hanım? And then I I thought this is an emotional crutch. Uh, And they are expecting someone to create hope for them, so to speak. So that is why I became a little bit disturbed by the question. And then it carried on after How to Lose a Country in several other countries it's the same question same in asked in the same manner uh and i thought you know the answer is quite obvious like organize and act but obviously there's another obstacle there before that organization and act organizing and acting the motivation why the reason to act 
I think people are asking for a reason rather than a hope. Uh, so that is why it annoyed me because also it put an unimaginable burden on my shoulders. Like, you know, now I have to uh, create hope in a truly uh, dark uh, situation. So, um, yeah, that is why I think. I, I wondered about that when I was reading the book because I actually feel like there is, you know, sometimes people say that they have to do this emotional labor as well. And I wondered if, you know, with your role as a public intellectual, some of what you are doing is merely telling people what your analysis of the world is. That's one aspect of it. But it sounds like what you're saying is that you also felt you then had to do the emotional labor of bringing them back up, bringing them hope, making them feel at the end of what might be a difficult conversation that it's okay, there are still ways to make this work. Yes. Uh, this is a great question, and I am truly thinking now. Uh, that is why I, I went a little bit silent. Yeah, um, that is true. But I can do it. You know, I can make people... Um, I can make people find a new reason to act and to be. Uh, I can, um, you know, elate them in that sense. Um so why wouldn't I do it? Yes, so why it's, wouldn't you do it? I, I, I do it, actually. Uh, it's just the word hope that gets me <laughs> a little bit weird. But otherwise, uh, you know, in every public speech, I think people leave the room feeling that, yes, we can do it. Uh, because I, you know, I want to restore the faith in humankind. And it is, it is an emotional labor, uh, both on my side and on their side. Uh, but... I, uh, sharing this labor uh, is my point uh, it's just don't put all the labor on me we can do it together and it will be a joyous thing to share this burden it won't be a burden anymore to create the reason to restore the faith uh, in politics and so on because I know in deep down uh, that that faith is necessary faith in humankind faith in politics because Fascism is the total loss of faith in humankind and in politics. Uh, and this is a dangerous, uh, that is a dangerous destination where people are going. I mean, like they, uh, in every country, if there is a right-wing populist leader, you know, emerging, you know uh, that there is loss of faith in politics. Uh, there is loss of faith uh, in, you know, uh, in people. So I know that that emotional labor is necessary uh, for the political action to start off. So that is why we need it. And, uh, you know, but it does feel do sometimes, it, uh, sorry, apologies, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Richard, but it does <laughs> feel like, as, as you did, Stephen Sacker, it, it does feel, it does feel like that there's an aspect that you feel upset about with that emotional labor, that maybe you feel as if audiences are not responding swiftly enough to the message that you believe you're sending them? No, not really. Um, not really. Uh, what I'm looking for, uh, friendship as a methodology. Uh, so friendship is a just place. Actually, friendship is the place where absolute justice happens. So that justice requires sharing the emotional labor, political labor as well. 
So this is what I'm asking from people. I started this new project, Letters From Now, and this is a, you know, um, an experiment uh, to create that kind of friendship uh, among the, you know, members of this project so that uh, we can uh, define a new way of uh, relating to each other when we are talking and thinking about politics. So this is what I'm looking for, and that absolute justice. I know absolute justice is impossible, but I mean, like our job is to incline towards that, so that ideal. So in human relations, uh, reader and writer relation is not exempt from this. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to be searching for that kind of friendship that where absolute justice is searched for, at least. I want to move on to talk about Turkey um, and really in a way we'll be talking about your your book prior to this one, How to Lose a Country. Um, you, you've talked about the long smoking without fire, as you put it in the book, that leads to dictatorship and tyranny. Where do you feel that Turkey is now along that pathway? The fire has already begun, definitely in your opinion. Turkey is a very interesting country. Well, every country is interesting, obviously. Uh, but we take pride in being the strangest country on the planet, which is not true, but we kind of like to think that. Uh, but partly it is true because somehow when you lose all your hope, something happens and everything changes in five minutes. This is an expression in Turkish. Uh, Gezi uprising in 2013 happened just like that. We had no hope. We had no uh, nothing to, you know, look forward to. And then suddenly something huge, massive happened. Mm -hmm. And it was the most joy, joyful thing I've ever seen in my life. Although there were, you know, horrible casualties and, you know, people were getting crippled and so on. But still, there was this uh, elating joy in those days of uprising. So uh, I don't think such a thing will uh, reoccur, but uh, this time I am think I am you know assuming not assuming but I am seeing this happening actually, and I think it will carry on happening. The new politics, the new opposition, will rise from the local politics because uh, the big cities are now run by opposition party mayors, uh, and they are producing incredible amount of uh, creative politics. So uh, it, sounds, it sounds as if you feel a somewhat optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> cautiously optimistic. Uh, yeah, I'm mean, like these, these bi binary, not what binary, like dichotomies, like hopeless, hopeful, optimist, uh, you know. I was trying to, well. to find a synonym for hopeful. <laughs> I, I know. I heard that your thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you want from me? You wrote a whole book about not being hopeful. Eh? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm seeing this happening. Uh, this is a reality. So it's not about my feelings. Well, I, I do think that history does not care about what we feel at home, like if, whether we are optimist or pessimist. It cares about what we do outside our homes together so uh, what I see happening right now is these mayors are leading the way towards a new kind of opposition which is far more colorful than the established conventional opposition party which they are coming from actually so uh, this is going to be a new new wave I suppose and 
I know I this like you know uh, one can feel the feelings of her country. I think I know that people are biting their uh you know <laughs> everything and mm, they nails, are yeah. trying to uh be patient until 2023 because it's not easy to be patient everything is really hellish in turkey at the moment you mean that by 2023 there might be a possibility of removing erdogan is that what you mean? yeah there is the elections uh, hopefully there will be elections hopefully there will be no blood spilled before those elections uh and if there will be an election like a proper uh election uh, obviously uh, they they are going i mean like this regime is going and we are going back to a parliamentarian system which i am personally looking forward to <laughs> is is it i mean don't you think that's somewhat optimistic 2023 is i mean election could conceivably be 18 months away Is eighteen mm-hmm. months sufficient? Erdogan is still popular in the country. He's still the dominant politician of the era. Faisal, he's not popular. Uh, his, you know, surveys and opinion polls all, uh, show that he's below forty, uh, even in thirties. Uh, his parties as as well. So uh, this is one thing. Second thing, uh, you know, I wouldn't really. Uh, depend on those on that uh, support either because that support like Erdogan created that support like any other authoritarian leader in Europe uh, or in any uh, any other part of the world uh, by creating web of finance political money uh, so uh, it's not only few families who's uh, you know sharing the riches of Turkey but that money goes through Uh, the capillary systems of a web that feeds the small man, the ordinary man, who become the you know diehard supporter of the party. Uh, so that is that web is collapsing now because there is no money left. Uh, I am depending on that as well. <laughs> And then w- your observations of Turkey were what eventually led to this book, How to Lose a Country. But it wasn't just Turkey. You started to feel that you'd seen those warning signs elsewhere. In the book, you lay out uh, seven steps that authoritarian movements go through to take power, which could take a country from democracy to dictatorship. And you said in the book that you felt that what was happening in Turkey, the same strategies were then being used elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Of those seven steps that you outlined, I won't go through all of them, but of the seven steps, where do you think we are now in what you might call the democratic West, like the US, Britain and France? At what stage? No, I mean, like, you know, I, every country is in a different... And these steps are not necessarily chronological. Uh, mm. But uh, I think what's happening right now in London is quite interesting because it applies to the fourth step, I guess, uh, dismantling the judiciary uh, system and so on. And also the corruption, uh, the party becoming... Very much, you know, involved with uh, money, uh, political money, and so on. So yes, I, in every country it is different, uh, and the center, both in France, in Germany, and in in United States, are trying to hold on to power. But we all know, even themselves know, that center cannot hold unless it is. Uh, supported by the progressives of that country. 
uh, Obama said something very interesting the other day about the center and center not holding progressive politics and so on. And I thought, oh, this guy is reading very good. I'm like, because he already knows that Biden is there thanks to the progressives of American mm. uh, society. Uh, it's not only them. It wasn't only Democratic Party that created that political wave that you know sent Trump away. Uh, so I think um, that should be the way for the center to renew. That will be the way for the center to renew itself to get the support of the progressives. Uh, mm. Left, like literally left uh, politics. Uh, I think this is going to be interesting. Uh, coming ten years will be really interesting in in Europe. The, the step that I thought was very intriguing was number three. The, the number th the third step is remove the shame. Immorality mm. is hot within quotes in the post truth world, and that's something I think that that is very much applicable to modern America because there is a sense that the that being an outsider is something that is politically exciting, not merely politically palatable in the way that perhaps it wasn't in the past, but that actually refusing the vaccine mandate, believing that there was a, a theft of the election, these things are somehow, as you say, hot, they're exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, to be honest, that is my favorite chapter. I'm <laughs> personally proud that I've written that chapter, but it wasn't easy because shame... Um, is an interesting word it's because it's uh, it sounds differently in my part of the world it sounds differently in christian world let's say uh, and yeah. when you well, tell say me the differences yeah ah it is it is not easy but it has a history uh, not only about christianity but also near uh, history about 1980s loss of shame and shame becoming something to get rid of but shame in my uh, part of the world is something else. It is something that stops you doing from uh, inhumane things, uh, the you know moral mistakes and so on. And those moral mistakes are not uh, necessarily related to religion. It's about being a good person as well. Anyway, so shame is a very interesting concept and it was really hard to write this concept in English. Uh, anyway, so this shame uh, concept and in shame in politics and loss of shame in politics is a huge topic. And because, you know, we are going back to the beginning of this conversation, uh, it affects our personal lives immensely. Mm. Uh, when Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, when Donald Trump, you know, proudly becoming the pussy grabber, when Boris Johnson's uh, words uh, about the dying people leaked, uh, yeah. and when they didn't really, they weren't really embarrassed of this. Yeah. Uh, that trickles down. That moral normal new moral normal trickles down. And that's what I mean. That you you're mm -hmm. not even talking about the use of language that trickles down. You mean that it's the moral universe that when Boris talks about leaving the bodies to pile high, that mm -hmm. idea of the moral universe he's conceiving of that trickles down. Yeah, it becomes sayable. It becomes thinkable. It becomes doable. And this is very dangerous because then on the streets you will have millions and millions of Boris Johnsons and Trumps. And then it is that point that 
it becomes really difficult for a country because then even if you get rid of Boris Johnson or Trump, you cannot get rid of these millions. So what are you going to do with these guys? So yeah, that shame and shame in politics, loss of shame in politics is particularly important, I think. I, I think that's a no return line. I wanted to end maybe by talking a little bit more personally about, about you and your work. One of the striking things about the book together is its informality, the sort of focus on relationships and ways of thinking. And in some ways, even though you seem like a critic of the neoliberal project, you're actually quite individualistic in how you write the book. You, know, you address people as, as individuals rather than as part of, a, of wider political groups. And, and is that because you feel that the political progress requires deep political change, a deep personal change? I don't think it's an individualistic book uh, because as all the other new progressives, I am looking for a political action that the individual does not have to melt into. Uh, I'm looking for a, uh, uh, you know, a, a crowd that everybody has its own, you know, are free to carry, you know, their own color. So I don't think it is individualistic, but yes, it takes the individual in its uh, center together. Mm. Uh, there is two different things, I guess. Uh, and yes, this society, all societies are made of individuals. And what we feel individually actually are not really completely different from each other. I think this, you know, we are all different thing is overrated. Mm. Um, we are all exhausted. We are all confused. We are living in fear. We're absolutely anxious. Everybody in, on this planet right now has lost a bit of its, uh, her and his, you know, mental, mental health. Uh, it is, you know, individual is um, not completely unique in that sense, especially when it comes to politics. I wonder if you feel that you have been personally changed by your politics. Yes, I did. In what way? I did. Uh, not, po not in terms of politics, I, I wouldn't say that. But uh, while writing together, I had to go back to the roots of uh my political position so why was i thinking that why was i you know a progressive why was i on the left of politics and so on so actually i i wanted to go to the moral heart of my political choices and i wanted to tell these uh, tell about this the core values to people so that they that they uh, so that they can sort of uh double check or they can uh, make their political choices more sturdy and more, uh, more, more, more active. So yeah, uh, it changed me, and I became a. I think I became a better person. Yes, while writing together. Do you feel that politics has taken rather a lot from your life? <laughs> well it you know uh when i had to leave turkey it was 2016 i started journalism when i was 18 in 1993 so that makes like 26 years i think uh so politics my political choices have cost me a lot i mean like it took away the life that i built for uh, in 26 years and all of a sudden i started I had to start from scratch. And this language I, right now I'm speaking, 
uh, is I had to relearn it, so to speak, in the last four years in order to mm. write these books. So it was a lot of work, and this was all because of my political choices. But then it's also important uh, when you are, you know, when you're paying a lot for your political choices in terms, you know, emotionally and uh, financially uh, in every way possible. It is good that you remember why you chose this in the first place. It heals the wounds, actually. You mentioned earlier about leaving Turkey. I've noticed that when people ask you, you seem very opposed to the word exile. People have described oh, yeah. you as that. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and you don't yeah. you don't like that term. I wondered why. It's a very heavy word, and once you uh, wear it on, you cannot take it off. That is absolutely eternal. Like you know. Uh, even if you go back to your Turkey, you're an exile. Uh, and it's also, Faisal, I think I'm too proud. Because uh, I feel like the Western world, especially, they love this image of a woman, you know, uh, running away from the barbarians, uh, throwing herself to the arms of civilization, exile, and so on. I cannot you know, keep that role. I'm like, even if I wanted to play that role, it wouldn't suit me. I would laugh. So it, it is a little bit of a reaction to that uh, expectation, uh, I think. No, I'm mm. not an exile. This is a long journey. Life is a long journey. And this is a part of it. Everybody's, uh, you know, living difficult lives. I am not living the most difficult life and so on. So this is how I see it. And I love uh, Brodsky's perspective, Russian poet Brodsky's perspective on this. Um, he talks about exile and refugee. He doesn't really necessarily say this, but he inspired me to say this. The word exile is creates this aristocratic, you know, privilege, so to speak. I am different than the Syrian who's, you know, who had to cross Mediterranean and who starts from life truly from scratch. Uh, and I, I don't like that aristocratic uh, difference between me and the Syrian or the Iraqi, I think. Do you feel that despite, as you said, having to leave the, the country and relearn a different language, do you still have faith, not hope, but faith in, <laughs> politi but faith in political progress? Absolutely. And if so, from where? Absolutely. Uh, I believe in people, you know, while talk, talking about faith, uh, I had to come up with a, a proper definition of human so that it is strong enough to carry our disappointments when we meet the worst of our kind. And it had to be solid enough to, to, to carry our higher expectations from humankind. So I, I, I came up with this definition, which is, I think, goes for everybody. Uh, even for the worst of us. I think humans, humankind uh, is hardwired to survive and su to survive by creating beauty. We are inclined towards beauty by nature. That is why I believe in humankind. Uh, and I choose to believe in humankind, by the way. This is a conviction. This is not a fact. This is a choice. Uh, and as any other faith, it's a tiny bit blind. And I like that blindness. I don't want my faith to be refuted. And, and I'm refusing my faith to be refuted. Because 
I have to believe in humankind in order to keep going, in order to speak, in order to write, in order to be. So this is a choice. This is a political and moral stance. Ece Timalkaran, thank you very much. Thank you, Faisal. You can sign up Ece's Letters From Now project by going to lettersfromnow.com, all one word, and follow her on Twitter at etimalkaran. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Line podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you for joining us.